when you met her, what you were meeting was a very nice, middle-class, rather inhibited English lady, and one says lady and not woman, uh, who one feels would have been most perfectly happy dispensing tea in fine china cups with cucumber sandwiches on a grassy green lawn, and I think that's right. That is what she was like. But then, how does it happen that that same English lady wrote books in which there are actually 83 poisonings? Like millions of others, I've always felt I knew Dame Agatha Christie personally. I don't mean we actually met. It was just that I seemed to know so much about her. It was her fate, much against her will, to be constantly in the news. Her sensational disappearance in 1926 pitched her straight into the headlines, though from the publication in 1920 of The Mysterious Affair at Styles, her first novel, she'd been in the public eye. Even so, few would have dared predict that this lady crime writer was destined to become the best-selling British writer ever, outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. From the outside, her life appears to have been an enviably calm progress, marred only briefly by a short period of domestic unhappiness, advancing inexorably book by book to the 80th birthday, the 80th publication, the birthday honours list and the immense personal fortune. Part of this impression comes from her own autobiography, in which the very talents she uses in detective fiction to conceal or puzzle are successfully employed in concealing herself from the reader. She was an expert at producing a kind of auntly smokescreen, generating image of herself as the handsome, genial old lady in a fur coat who liked gardening, cooking and eating good food, was intensely fond of her family and adored dogs. It was almost as if there was someone else who wrote two best-selling crime stories a year, which contained, amongst other things, 83 poisonings and various other bloody and ingenious forms of death. Where there is an absence of facts, myths start to multiply. I hope I'm not beginning to sound like Agatha Christie's favourite sleuth, Miss Marple. But do any of the myths surrounding the life of Agatha Christie contain a grain of truth? What was the real explanation of her dramatic ten-day disappearance in 1926? Was she really so exceptionally talented? Or was it just the snowball effect of the Christie for Christmas idea that pushed up her sales? Was she really so fabulously wealthy? And perhaps the greatest mystery of all, who really was Agatha Christie, the person who became so adroit at concealing herself while remaining in the public eye? Dr Janet Morgan has just written the authorised biography of Dame Agatha, and she told me that the story starts in Torquay at the end of the last century. Agatha Clarissa Miller, as she was then called, was the third and youngest child of a prosperous upper-middle-class family. Her father was American, her mother was English. Her father was, a, as she put it in her, her own writings, a most agreeable man. He was a businessman who, um, whose money came in rather automatic way until it stopped coming at all from an American trust. Her mother, who was much younger than her father and in a complicated way related to him, was um, capricious and light-hearted and great fun, called Clara. They lived in Torquay, in a big rambling house with a conservatory and potted plants and a staff of servants. Agatha's background was far more secure than most people's, but it wasn't as secure as it seemed. For one thing, this was the long 
golden Edwardian afternoon before the First World War. And although it's easy, well, we can appreciate that with hindsight, whereas one couldn't at the time, the whole structure, the whole of Agatha's world, England's world, was to be engulfed in 1914. And then, much closer to home, there were fissures. Agatha's father's trustees had not handled his financial affairs very well. All this was in America and gradually his income dwindled. And he himself, Frederick, was not well. He died when Agatha was young, 11, 12. And uh, so eventually there was Agatha, still quite a young child, looking after her mother because her sister and brother were grown up and away in this large rambling house and very soon in wartime conditions. But with the war that sense of absolute security was gone forever. By upbringing and by inclination Agatha appeared to be someone who strove to be in control of herself. She was practical, she was level-headed, and she got on with things. But the evidence seems to indicate that this was not the whole story. Agatha is herself a deceptive character. It's like catching a glimpse of someone in a mirror, or a series of mirrors, or different lights. She was, in many ways, one of the calmest people imaginable. But she did on two or three notable occasions demonstrate this anxiety came to the surface. For instance, when during the First World War her grandmother, one of her grandmothers, moved in with Agatha's mother and Agatha, there was a tremendous unpacking and upheaval and repacking of the grandmother's possessions, which were enormous in quantity because she was a hoarder all of which had rotted or deteriorated one way and another over the years. And when Agatha writes about this in her autobiography, you can see how deeply disturbing she found this. Later on, when her first husband, Archie, told her that he loved someone else, and again, interestingly, when Agatha had been packing up a house, this time her, her mother's home, um, because her mother had just died, another part of her world gone, she demonstrated this deep turbulence that was going on underneath. In 1926, that deep turbulence made its way to the surface with disastrous consequences. By this time, Agatha had married Archie Christie and had a daughter called Rosalind and produced her first book in 1920, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. It was a remarkably assured debut and it attracted immediate attention. There was a market hungry for any kind of escapist literature. Colin Watson, himself a detective story writer, has written with great insight about the mood of the middle classes in England between the wars. It was as if people would think of anything rather than what had gone before and what seemed likely to come. Those English families who were changing their library books as regularly as they changed the accumulators in their battery-powered wireless sets, had no desire to be harrowed or depressed by either medium. The immeasurable carnage of the recent war was a curiously private obscenity, brooded over by the tired, quiet men who'd come back. 
Only now were those who had remained at home beginning to learn that whatever they thought they'd shared with the men overseas in those four years, it wasn't the war. And out of the silence of the returned soldiers and the fear of the others lest they hear the unendurable, there was formed a vacuum in which for more than twenty years little but the trivial and the fatuous and the make-believe seemed capable of flourishing. And games. Games were the thing to cheer everybody up. In those two decades of the 1920s and 30s began the process whereby game-playing became first a preoccupation, then an obsession, and ultimately, when renamed sport, a national religion. The detective story game was a puzzle, pure if not simple. It was related to real life only in respect of a common vocabulary and a set of mores epitomised by Poirot's declaration, I have a bourgeois attitude to murder, I disapprove of it. This game did not require belief in the commission of a crime, in the sense of finding room in the mind for the true blackness of spilled blood, for its haunting smell, for the pitiable surprise upon a murdered face. One noted instead the game's familiar counters, harmless as play money, gun, dagger, paperweight, poisoned thorn, spreading stain, tumbler smelling of almonds, watch glass smashed at 5.24, expression of terror as if acrid reek of cordite. Did the victim matter? No, not really. Sympathy for the departed was never solicited, even by implication. He or she was generally someone widely disliked, someone rich or with expectations of wealth, someone powerful, malevolent or mean, very often an extortionist, sometimes a character hiding former criminality behind a present appearance of prestige. An innocent or venerable person scarcely ever got murdered. To deplore the two-dimensional nature of these stories is to miss the point of why they were written in that form. They could not have offered what they did, relaxation, and in a subtle way, reassurance, if they had possessed that third dimension which gives a book the power to affect the reader in much the same way as actual experience. A new lifestyle was emerging for the well-to-do middle classes, the weekend began to play a significant part in their life. Each Saturday one motored in the Delage or the Bullnose Morris for a round of golf at Sunningdale. Or if your husband was a positive golf addict, as Archie was, you actually went to live in one of the new houses surrounding the golf course. Agatha did her best at golf, got on with her writing, and Archie continued to be something in the city. They were, to all intents and purposes, a handsome and happy couple. Then suddenly, consternation. Agatha's car is found crashed and abandoned in a desolate Surrey beauty spot. The police try to contact Mr Christie, only to find he was spending the weekend elsewhere. On the slopes of Newlands Corner near Guildford, a few hundred yards from where Agatha had crashed her car on that frosty December night in 1926, Janet Morgan tried to fill in some of the background of what life had really been like at the Christie's Sunningdale home. Agatha had been having the most frightful time. She, anyway, didn't like Sunningdale, where she was living with Archie and Rosalind. It was not her sort of world, very suburban. She liked either the city where there was plenty to do or the real country where you could swim and walk. Sunningdale was a place where people went around in couples, but the principal occupation was golf. 
Archie was spending long days in the city. She hardly saw him at weekends. She had her own work, but she was stuck there in Sunningdale, was bored, restless, got dissatisfied with the house, the tradesmen, and so on and so forth. She was in a particularly uh, unhappy condition because she was always very deeply attached to her mother, whom she, Agatha, had partly mothered after our, Agatha's father died when she was little. And Clara, Agatha's mother, had got ill in, down in Ashfield in Devonshire in the family home and died. Agatha was on her way to her mother when she felt a premonition in the train, went cold all over, knew that Clara was dead, and sure enough, she was. So she felt miserable and guilty at not having been there at the time. Uh, then there was the business of clearing up Ashfield and the clearing up the estate. And this was very hard physical work. The only thing that sustained her was the thought that as the summer drew on, when all the clearing up was finished, she and Archie would go away for a holiday to Alassio in Italy. This would also be a time when she and Archie would be together again, as they'd been when they were younger, and her heart was set on this. When Archie arrived in Ashfield and told Agatha on Rosalind's birthday, even perhaps in the room where Rosalind was born, that he had made no arrangements for their holiday, and indeed he had fallen in love with someone else, that did it. In her autobiography, Agatha trenchantly describes the scene at Ashfield, her mother's home, between herself and Archie. It was the end of the Christie's marriage. Agatha broke up. She was completely distraught. They battled on for a while, trying to live as normally as they could. Archie moved to his club in London. He was not, as people have often assumed, living with Miss Neal at all. Miss Neal was very respectable, as indeed was her family, and Archie too was very respectable and had his, his reputation in the city to consider. But he was seeing her, and Agatha and Rosalind tried to go on living at Stiles in Sunningdale. But it was no good. Archie was adamant and Agatha had to realise that she had lost him. However hard she tried to see all sides of the question and to be understanding. She clearly did love him very much then. She did and she always had loved him very much. He, as his early letters show, as you, you see in the book, had certainly loved her very much too. Archie was a, an interesting man, a, a nervous disposition had a very delicate stomach, nervous digestion, for instance, and he could never, he couldn't stand tears and unhappiness and difficulty, and he couldn't join with Agatha at this time and sympathise with her. I think he was possibly also jealous of the close relationship that she had had with her mother. There's a passage in Death on the Nile where Poirot is seeing a couple dancing, and he says in French, that that is what happens with love. There is always one who loves and one who is beloved. And I wonder if that was the way things had begun to go and Agatha had been slow in realising it. Two main theories were advanced at the time for her sudden flight. One was that it was a very early prototype of the publicity stunt. 
But though the notoriety of the case certainly served to boost her sales, Agatha was so almost pathologically shy that the whole idea seems ludicrous. The second theory is that she was perfectly conscious of what she was doing throughout, and the story about her losing her memory was done just to spite Archie. The truth was simpler and sadder. In the space of a few months, her mother had died, and the husband she adored had said he wanted a divorce. Weeks before her disappearance, Agatha was already showing signs of confusion, sleeplessness, and loss of memory. She had trouble remembering what her own name was. On that particular December night, she was alone. Archie was spending the weekend with some friends at Dorking, where Miss Neal would be present. For Agatha, something snapped. She could not bear to be at Styles, a house that now held so many painful memories. So she simply got into the car and drove away. There is a certain dreadful poignancy in leaving Styles and realizing that now her mother was dead, there was literally no home to go to. She drove round fruitlessly for several hours, then eventually set off in the direction of Dorking, where Archie was staying. Perhaps she thought that if she confronted him, she could make him change his mind. Instead, she crushed the car, briefly concussed herself, and when she came round, began the bizarre series of events that were to lead her to Harrogate, headlines in every paper in the country, and the conclusive end to her marriage. Janet Morgan and I stood where it was believed the car had gone off the icy road. What seems to have happened is that she either walked, or she may have caught, because by then it was six, seven o'clock in the morning. The penny bus that came over the ridge to take workers into Guildford, into Guildford, where she got a train to Waterloo, and again, all this is new. I mean, we've only just discovered this. She then found herself at Waterloo Station with a, a bruised arm, bleeding, and not quite sure what she was doing there. She went into. The buffet and got herself a cup of coffee and a bun, and then took a taxi to Whiteleys in Bayswater, and there she bought a coat and a small dressing case and some night things, and then took a taxi back to either St Pancras or to King's Cross. I think it would be useful to say here how we know all this. She later, when she was found and at her sister's insistence, went to see a psychiatrist in Harley Street, and she had hypnotism. And with the help of the psychiatrist and the hypnotist, she managed to recall almost everything that happened, but not what happened between the time she left her house and the time she crashed the car. She, and they thought that was probably because she had been concussed. Anyway, there she is at either King's Cross or St Pancras, where she took a train to Harrogate. First of all, she had been intending to go to Yorkshire anyway that weekend to stay at Beverley. That had been cancelled on her instructions, but she probably, at the back of her mind, remembered this. She also had seen at Waterloo various posters. They were in all the big London stations at the time, advertising Harrogate as a healthy place. It was a spa, a popular spa. And for somebody who was feeling pretty groggy and was obviously in a damaged condition, this was an obvious thing to do. When she got there, she registered under the name of Teresa Neal from Cape Town. This is interesting. Teresa was the name of a woman Agatha knew in Sunningdale. Neal was the name of Miss Nancy Neal, 
the young lady with whom Archie Christie had told Agatha he was in love. And I think that this strange choice of names does tell us something about Agatha's condition. She was remembering certain things. For instance, the reason she went to Whiteley's was that was, that was the department store to which she used to go with her grandmother. Neil was a name which she vaguely recollected, and so forth. She was in some respects able to live perfectly normally as a, a middle-aged woman, uh, well, she was, yes, 36, I suppose, a middle-aged woman, uh, going about her business, staying in an hotel, shopping in Harrogate, and in other respects she had absolutely no idea of who she was. Eventually the police were alerted and Archie came to take her home. He still wanted his divorce. The first part of Agatha's life was over, though the mystery of her disappearance was to go unsolved but certainly not unspeculated upon until her death in 1976. The second great subject for speculation when her name is mentioned is whether or not her books possessed any real quality or whether it was simply a kind of snowball effect that carried her so relentlessly towards bestsellerdom. Julian Simmons, himself a well-known crime writer, has no doubts as to the quality of her work, but feels she was substantially helped by being the right writer for the right time. I think she had great gifts as a particular kind of crime writer and a particular one who was suited to the period in which she started to write. Her first book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, appeared in 1920, and that, in a way, was just the moment for something new for not the abandonment of the Sherlock Holmes canon but for a distinct change from the Sherlock Holmes type of detective and indeed from the Sherlock Holmes kind of story because of course the early crime stories were short stories. Agatha Christie came in on the beginning of the crime novel as something that was destined to become extremely popular almost to wipe out the popularity of the short story. So she operated inside that context and in the context of what's generally called the golden age of crime fiction. It doesn't necessarily mean it's better than what succeeded it. It lasted from, roughly speaking, 1920, the, the mysterious affair at Styles, until 1939. And the characteristics of it were unreality, the absolute fairy tale nature of the world of the crime story. That was what was emphasised. Rules were laid down which you had to obey, uh, or which you were supposed to obey. Not everybody did. Uh, and Agatha was very, very much suited by this. But given that Agatha herself recognised that she had considerable talent, I asked Janet Morgan why she'd stayed almost exclusively with the detective form. She was in a curious way unambitious having, just as she had discarded singing and, and being a concert pianist, when she realised she wasn't good enough. So, when she found she was good at writing detective stories, she kept to it. And this, some people find infuriating, that she didn't actually develop, she didn't turn into a, a powerful novelist, writing all sorts of other things. Uh, she knew her own horizons, her own limitations. She knew that she wasn't stylistically the most magnificent of writers, but that she was very, very good at plotting. And it's interesting to talk to people who write detective stories about how they do it. 
it seems to require a certain sort of mind, a certain sort of application, that you, you think of some twist in a plot, and then you elaborate it and work on it and so on and so forth. And Agatha was brilliant at that and did it almost naturally. Her notebooks are full of dozens and dozens and dozens of plots, whereas some people are lucky if they find half a dozen in their lifetimes. And I think that intrigued her. It was a gift which she had, and which, again, she made the most of. Some crime writers loved devising plots. Others, like Raymond Chandler, hated it. He said the story and the fun only began once he'd constructed the plot. Agatha Christie loved plotting, according to the crime novelist Christiana Brand. You see, with all of us, there's one little grain of, of a plot, one little teensy weensy grain, and that is the difficult thing to find. Now, she seems to have been able to find lots and lots of little grains. Now, around that little grain, you, you wind and wind and wind your story and your plot and you work it all out and so on. And so she did, most brilliantly, most brilliantly. Um, but the answer to her was that she could find thousands of little grains to write about. Harry Keating, creator of Inspector Goatee, told me that there may only be seven variations on how you can kill a person, but Agatha Christie rang variations on all of them. To the seventh power, yes. Um, if you tune yourself to that, they come, I think. You can manoeuvre your mind uh, so that you're receptive to things, and the tiniest thing that you see someone's dirty nail, something like that, uh, <laughs> turns you, we both look, turns you at once into a possible plot, and lots of them die, but some of them work. Janet Morgan studied the notebooks in which Agatha Christie tried out various ideas for plots, and thinks that in those notebooks is the conclusive proof of her plotting genius. Many writers, detective story writers, might see or read in the newspapers about um, a, a way of killing someone or a way of being found out or whatever. With Agatha, something more than that happened. She would turn it upside down and inside out. I'll give you one more example, because partly I'm very fond of this. Identification by teeth. Agatha read in the newspaper about a body being identified only by its teeth. And in her plotting notebook, she takes this idea and writes 12 or 13 variations on it, um, including the idea not that somebody is murdered and a dentist identifies the teeth and therefore the body, but that a dentist is murdered. Now, why should a dentist be murdered? perhaps because the dentist has done something to somebody's teeth in order to do what? And so, and it, it's, it's extraordinary and rather breathtaking to see how Agatha takes up this notion and plays 15 different variations on it and then picks one and writes a symphony. In that reference to the dentist who mysteriously died, I'm sure that Christy aficionados will recognise the opening sequence to One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. A criticism that's often been levelled against Agatha Christie's books is that the morality depicted within them is so clearly black and white as to be almost meaningless in real-life terms. In the course of reading the crime stories against the private notebooks, did Janet Morgan feel that the plots were really meant to carry any moral ideas? There are certain beliefs which she has and expresses very strongly. One is that 
the people who are harmed when a crime is committed, not only the victim, but also the innocent, that until a mystery is solved, everyone is suspected, and that resolution is important to clear this sort of social crime, as well as the actual crime of killing somebody. She believes in justice. Miss Marple is a, a figure who represents justice. Justice is something almost um, ideal. All humans can do is, is make judgments, which isn't quite the same, but in the, the best of outcomes, the, the judgment coincides with the, the just resolution of something. There's a very interesting book called Nemesis, where Miss Marple is Nemesis, who is, she is invited long after a crime has been committed to investigate it and to fairly apportion guilt. The person originally accused of the crime turns out to have been innocent. And it is Miss Marple's task, this rather strange old lady in a, in a night dress and a little lace thing on her head to keep her curls in place at night, who is the figure, this, this figure of, of, of nemesis, the finder out of truth. And the reason I think of that is because of Sir Geoffrey Jackson, who was our ambassador in Uruguay and who was kidnapped, do you remember, and held for quite a long time, months and months and months, by the guerrillas, told me that he had very little to read except the odd Agatha Christie in Spanish. And in order to chat with his captors and put them at their ease, so to speak, he talked about Miss Marple. And they two were very interested in Miss Marple and venerated Miss Marple. Uh, they venerated two people. One was their guerrilla leader or hero and the other was Miss Marple, both for the same reasons, as symbols of right as opposed to wrong and rather than left. And this is fascinating that, that Miss Marple becomes a sort of archetype in that way. So yes, the, the books are very moral books. They're also comfortable in another way, in that there is a problem and then there is a resolution. And also in that, apart from the odd murder, they're not messy books. People do have very complicated relations with each other. And uh, I think Agatha was a very wise and perceptive observer of human nature and how people go on. And people, yes, do kill each other and plot to, to kill each other. But in a way, it, a lot of that takes place off, off stage. They have a certain modesty about them. Before leaving the subject of her books, I couldn't resist asking a contemporary thriller writer, Julian Simmons, which one of Agatha Christie's celebrated sleuths he likes the best. I very much prefer Poirot. Uh, it's well known that Agatha Christie much preferred Miss Marple. And indeed, when she, she talked to me once and said she would have got rid of Poirot if she could have done, but she said, people, people write to me and say how you must love him if they only knew. Uh, but she couldn't get rid of Poirot simply because the demand for him from readers uh, was so very great. However, what she did uh, was to 
in the later stages of her career to delete Poirot from any play that was made from a Poirot book in which Poirot would appear. There's a play called, I think, Black Coffee, uh, which is taken from a novel with Poirot in, and Poirot is simply taken out of the book. I think she would probably have approved of Poirot in Death on the Nile uh, and also the Albert Finney Poirot. I prefer Poirot myself simply because he does arrive at his conclusions from something approaching a rational deduction, whereas by the end Miss Marple was smelling evil everywhere she went and simply making a series of wild quantum leaps in her head. Yes, I found Miss Marple much more unbelievable than Poirot. Neither of them is precisely meant to be believable, of course, but um, she did seem to me knitting away and observing things. It's a nice idea, uh, but it didn't, for me, work out in practice. I mean, the stories worked out all right, or some did. The 450 from Paddington, I think, is awfully good. Uh, but it's not helped by the presence of Miss Marple, especially, or, as I say, it's not helped for me. Poirot, in the early stages especially, I thought was a really brilliant creation. We are moving inside, of course, the two-dimensional world of crime writing creations. One's not saying Poirot was a brilliant creation uh, in the sense that he was a fully rounded human being or that he was like a character in George Eliot, no. Uh, but um, in the context of the kind of story she was writing, Poirot was splendid, he was just right, and he added life and verve to uh, what might sometimes uh, have been more ordinary. As I've dealt in such detail with the breakup of Agatha Christie's first marriage, it's perhaps only fair to say something about the second marriage in 1930 to the archaeologist Max Malloin. In many ways, it must have seemed a daring second marriage. Max was in his mid-twenties when they married. Agatha, at 14 years his senior, was nearly 40. But against all the odds, it worked, as Matthew Pritchard, Dame Agatha's grandson, told me. I remember saying to my wife when... Uh, when we'd been married a year or two, I think, that if I could have picked a model for a successful and happy marriage, uh, my grandparents would have been it. I mean, which only goes to show that all the rules that, that we're brought up to believe are um, necessary for such a, a happy state aren't necessarily true. Um, certainly when they met, um, they had, apart from travel, um, they had few things in common. I think archaeology is a fairly narrow science and um, she didn't know much about that but she soon learned and throughout the marriage I think it's fair to say he took remarkably little interest in her books. So uh, you, you know it, it, it all goes to show that where there's love there's a way. I mean uh, they were the most marvellously happy couple that I've ever seen and I think it was sort of a very miserable thing to see my grandfather for a few years after my grandmother died. And the archaeologist Dr Richard Barnett, who accompanied the Malloins on several expeditions in the 1930s, agrees that it was a very happy marriage. I think it was. I think they were really real friends. I don't feel there was anything particularly sexy about it, but what was that? My business. Not my business. There was a real understanding from the beginning of, I think, and that was... One thing that she needed so much, she'd been badly battered. And 
I know about his mentality, what his background, mental background was. It requires a certain amount of courage to take on a woman that much older and a I celebrated agree. woman. Well, she was, wasn't a celebrated then as she became, but she, it was, it was a big, big step. But one which, which worked? It paid off. They remained, I'm convinced, deeply fond of each other. He was most solicitous and caring in whenever I saw them together. And it was, in fact, quite rather touching, because very touching. She was often, in her later years, as you know, she was old and firm and uh, pretty. Must have been a, quite a problem. I thought it was a very nice menage. Dame Agatha's earning as Britain's best-known writer have led many people to assume that she was a very wealthy woman indeed. She was known to be an astute reader of contracts and had recognised by her fifth book that her publishers needed her more than she needed them and her confidence grew accordingly. But was she equally adroit in managing money? Apparently not, according to Philip Ziegler, a director of Collins Books. She was a very professional writer. I would doubt whether she was really a very professional businesswoman. I mean, it seems to me she got her finances into a fine old muddle and never seemed to know to within many thousands of pounds how much money she had got or hadn't got or who, what she did or didn't owe the inland revenue in how many countries. And I'm not suggesting that it's easy for someone earning as much money in as many places as she did to keep tabs on what's going on. But the muddle in which she, in fact, got and the worry and distress she caused herself by that muddle was enormous. And I think if she'd really devoted to her finances, the professional attention she devoted to her plotting, then um, life would have been a lot easier for her. I was always told, um, when, when I was younger and admi admired her books greatly, that she was fantastically wealthy. She was so wealthy, in fact, that she didn't get individual money for books. She simply went to her publishers and asked from time to time for sums of money. Now, was that true or was that just popular myth? I she certainly got perfectly normal royalties paid to her extremely business-like agents, like any other author. I suppose in the case of advances, it's very largely a question of whether she happened to need something at the time or not. But um, no, I mean, alas, it's a lovely picture of this very rich old lady just occasionally asking for a little money, but I'm afraid it wasn't actually <laughs> what happened. So was Dame Agatha made fabulously rich by her writings? Janet Morgan thinks not. No, definitely not. Agatha was not a very rich woman. Well, she was richer than a lot of us are. She had some beautiful houses, for example, but she didn't have much um, money to chuck around. She, as a child, as we said, her father lost his money, and times were pretty hard. In the first years of her marriage, times were jolly hard too. And one of the nicest episodes in her life is it happens in the 20s, early 20s, when she and Archie are able to drop everything and go off on a tour of the empire. Archie was working and Agatha accompanied him and also worked very hard indeed, as you will see from my book. And that was great fun and that was a, a long and extended fling in many ways, away from immediate responsibilities. She then had a period of relative prosperity when they got back from that. And then they got overextended in the early 20s. They had a house that was too big and expensive to run and two cars and so on and so forth. And they were rather poor again. 
Then Agatha was divorced, and for a year or two as well, things were pretty hard, just readjusting and so forth. And then she did begin to earn well from her books and strange things like um, third reprint of Swedish copyright or whatever. And the money came in and seemed to come in quite merrily, though she didn't have racehorses and mink coats and so forth. It was enough to live a comfortable existence on until 1937, when suddenly extraordinary things began to happen with tax. The main point was, to put it very simply, that until then it had been assumed that if you were an alien, um, say you were English, and you earned a lot of money in America on sales of books in America, that you paid the tax on those American earnings in this country, in Britain, and uh, that, you, that you didn't pay twice, both in America and in Britain. And suddenly, in the late 30s, there was a case which went all the way up to the Supreme Court about another writer called Raffaello Sabatini, uh, and it was found that Sabatini had to pay American tax, and so Agatha was found herself liable for heaps and heaps of back tax. Of course, she didn't have the money to pay the back tax on these American earnings. Then, by the time the lawyers, who were also very expensive, had disentangled quite a lot of this, which was a, in, in many ways a comic story if it doesn't affect you. Um, it, it was the war, and Agatha didn't have any spare capital or anything. She had property, but nobody wanted to buy a stocking great house in Devonshire in the middle of the war. And all her American income was frozen. Agatha may have resented paying tax, but she was a generous friend. She also did give a lot away. She gave away a number of copyrights to relations and, and protégés and so forth. She supported Max's archaeological work when the Metropolitan Museum had to pull out and gave its funds to some other cause. Agatha did a great deal to help that work in Iraq. Um, she was a very generous friend to this particular home for old people in London. There are lots of people who have told me, some in confidence and not all, of Agatha's discreet kindness to them, far more than there are those who have said, do you know, I can't understand it, she was so rich, and... The latter, of course, are often people who don't realise that if you write and ask someone for £10, that's only £10, but there are probably 60 or 70 of you writing every week. Even with explanations and the new evidence that's emerged in Janet Morgan's biography, it's still somehow difficult to put together the whole picture of what Dame Agatha was really like, to fuse completely those two apparently opposing images of the cosy, amiable old lady and the cool-headed and resourceful mistress of detection. Perhaps this final mystery will always have to go unsolved, even to a crime writer such as Julian Simmons, while the gifts were self-evident, the person who possessed them must remain a puzzle. What Agatha Christie gave to the crime story, her unique contribution, uh, was the devising of apparently impossible plots. In that sphere, she was unique. Uh, there are now, perhaps, much better novels written than Agatha Christie wrote. Uh, but we can't compare any latter-day practitioner with the ingenuity of her plot. In what she did, she was absolutely supreme, and we shan't look on her like again.